Well, good morning. Welcome to The Story Church. My name is Eric. I'm one of the pastors here at The Story. And whether you're at our Timber Grove campus or tuning in as part of our online campus, I am so glad you're part of The Story today. I'll get to our message in just a, a, a quick moment. But first, I wanted to be sure and remind all the men in the room or watching online, all the men are invited to join us for the first meeting this season of Leading Men, our Tuesday morning men's ministry. It's going to meet every Tuesday morning throughout the fall, starting this Tuesday, 6.45 to 8 a.m. It's going to be an incredible season. We've planned the whole thing out. And whether you're a Christian or not, you don't know what you believe or you're a solid believer, we, we've got a place for you. And we want you to, to join us for breakfast. And we'll ha always have breakfast tacos or, or something delicious along with some coffee and, uh, and a great message for you to start your Tuesday off with. So I hope to see you this Tuesday morning at our River Oaks campus, 6.45 to 8 a.m. All right, we're going to continue this uh, September message series called Ask Me Anything. For some unknown reason, I asked y'all to be the pastor for, <laughs> for the month of September. You guys get to decide every week what the sermon topic is going to be. So I asked y'all back in August to ask me anything, and boy, did you ever. So y'all sent in dozens and dozens of some of the most compelling challenging and at times hilarious <laughs> questions about God and faith and, and Jesus and Christianity and uh, questions that ran the gamut, really, from drugs, questions about drug use and aliens and questions about sex and suffering and, and questions about new age practices and, and horoscopes, all kinds of Great questions, and, and every week you guys are voting online to decide what the next week's message is going to be about. So uh, we get to continue that today. Uh, one of the most eye-opening aspects of the questions that y'all asked is the fact that more than half, well over half of the questions y'all asked had to do with the Bible. And not just like a question about a specific story in the Bible, but really a question about the Bible writ large. Like, why should we trust this book at all? Where does its authority come from? Who says we have to follow what this book talks about? And so that reminded me, all those questions that came in reminded me why we started this church in the first place. I mean, when Giovanna and I moved our family to Houston, Texas to start this new ministry in 2015 or whenever it was, um, we really didn't know what we were getting into. We just knew God was sending us here to plant something new that would reach people that other churches might not have been reaching. We got here and started talking to people in the city of Houston and, uh, and got to know this town. And what we realized was that almost without fail, it was eerie how common this was when we were talking to non-religious people or formerly religious people about, about faith, like non-Christians, right, about Christianity. Uh, without fail, their biggest hurdle in their path toward, you know, some faith in Jesus or, or coming back to Jesus was, was the Bible. People are, are, by and large, okay with the idea of God, some supreme being in the universe. People tend to have pretty good feelings about Jesus. But when it comes to the Bible, it's, it's really clear that, that folks are struggling mightily to believe they should surrender their life and their morality uh, to this ancient religious text, right? 
I mean, that, that concern right there is the reason why, not only the reason why we started this church, it's the reason why we named this church The Story. Because when, when we started this community, we wanted the city of Houston and the whole world really to know that the Bible isn't some stale, old, judgy, religious text. The Bible is, is the story of God's perfect love for every living soul. That's why when I stood up to deliver the first ever sermon at the first ever worship service of the Story Church back in 2015. This is what I said. These are the first words out of my mouth. I went back and looked them up in the manuscript that I wrote for that week. I said, what excites me most about the Story's future is helping people who are far from God find their way back. And nine times out of 10, the reason why a person pulls back from God or from the church is rooted in the Bible. I'm tired of my friends giving up on God because Christians lack the courage to contend with the questions real people are asking in the real world every day. I said that six and a half years ago at our first ever service, and six and a half years later, I feel exactly the same way today. That's one of the reasons I know that we're on the right path here at the story. We're doing what God has called us to do. And apparently, I'm not the only one in our community that feels that way as evidenced by the dozens and dozens of questions that you all wrote in about biblical authority and questioning uh, some aspects of Scripture. Last week, we started this sermon series with a, with a question uh, along those same lines about the Bible. Your question last week had to do with uh, ambiguities in Scripture or perceived ambiguities in Scripture. And today's question is kind of a sequel to that one. And again, y'all determined this. Turns out y'all are pretty good at putting a sermon series together because they seem to be stacking up in, in proper order here. So we're telling a really good story with how y'all are ordering these questions. Today's question is how are we supposed to know which biblical laws still apply and which ones we can leave behind and we no longer have to worry about? That is a good question. And that it's a tough question to write a sermon about. So once again, thank you to whoever submitted that one. It's a really important question, though. It really is, um, because it's important for Christians and skeptics alike. Obviously, it's a question you would typically hear from skeptics. And some of you who are Christians might hear that, that question and think, well, I, that's not a struggle for me. Maybe I should just tune out or, or, uh, or turn on some other preacher's sermon. Um, <laughs> well, I won't judge you if you do, but wait, there's more, all right? So even for Christians, this question is important. Here's why. You're going to be addressed with this question. Somebody's going to ask you this. And even if it's not an issue for you, you need to be ready to respond to a skeptic's honest question along these lines. Because in my experience, this isn't a question that comes up casually in conversation. This is a question that usually is part of a greater argument being levied against Christianity. So it's almost used as an attack or a critique of the Christian worldview by people who really want to push Christians uh, to consider, you know, more progressive ideas or, or more secular uh, norms and mores, especially where hot-button issues are concerned. For example, just in the last week, y'all, since I've been preparing this message, I guess I, I was more attuned to comments about this question in particular, but I, I started hearing it. And I heard just in the past week, 
people in person and like on Twitter, and y'all know how I love Twitter, um, using this question to really levy a critique uh, against Christian uh, moral codes and moral ethics and things like that. So uh, it happened in regards to a conversation about sexuality, and it happened in regard to the, the recent law passed in Texas about abortion. And in both cases, the idea was, hey, Christians don't follow all the laws in the Bible. They just pick and, and choose, right? And, uh, and, and so why should, we, why should we listen to them at all? Why should we listen to the Bible at all? The line of reasoning goes something like this. First, number one, Christians say the whole Bible is true and and must be followed. Second, Christians don't follow the whole Bible. They, They just follow some of the rules, but not all of them. Third, we can only assume then that Christians pick and choose which laws still apply and which ones no longer do. Fourth, conveniently enough, again, I'm kind of using the sarcasm font here, but this is the way people will talk about this. Conveniently enough, the rules that these Christian leaders, who are usually men, the rules they decide still apply are the same rules that keep women and and LGBT people and and poor folks in their place. How convenient. And then the fifth sort of uh, final point in that line of reasoning is we shouldn't trust the Bible's ethics or laws at all. The Christians don't even follow them all, right? That's the argument. And it's not just an argument that's used by skeptical uh, or secular non-Christians either. Increasingly in our culture, you'll hear this similar line of reasoning used by some Christians. So some people who who are are self-professed Christians will use this same line of reasoning against the overarching authority of Scripture as a way of encouraging churches and denominations to acquiesce to cultural norms, to changing social norms. So there are certain kinds of Christians and denominations that will use this same kind of reasoning to say, hey, we Christians have always been picking and choosing which laws apply and which ones don't. So if you're reading the Bible, or if we're reading the Bible together and we come across a rule or a few laws here and there that we don't like or that don't resonate with us or that don't feel like love to us today, then we have a license to overlook those rules and laws. And that is a a pretty common conversation being had in churches in, in the West, especially, and it's tearing churches and denominations apart. Now, this is by far the most common critique being levied against uh, Christianity and Christian moral claims, uh, traditional Christian moral claims these days. And, and I think we Christians should do all that we can to listen up. Sometimes we roll our eyes. Sometimes we just dismiss such claims. We should listen up, especially when we're hearing these same arguments from different sources. Look, anytime you hear the same criticism coming from different independent sources, you better listen up. There might be something to that. Where there's smoke, there might be fire, you know? Um, so if your ex-wife says you can't be trusted, you know, that, that's one thing. She, she might have an agenda. She might be biased. She might be crazy, whatever. I'll leave that to you and the Lord to decide. But if your ex-wife and your current wife both say you can't be trusted, that's a different thing, right? 
And if your ex-wife and your current wife and your current girlfriend all say you can't be trusted, then you might be the problem. So when it comes to these questions about the Bible and its authority and its laws and rules and, and the, the moral codes in Scripture, how deep does the problem go? How, how deep is our issue here? We can't deny there is an issue. Clearly, so many people have gotten the impression that Christians just sort of arbitrarily, subjectively pick and choose the laws we want to uphold and those we can choose to ignore. Now, I don't believe that it's necessarily the case that Christians have arbitrarily or subjectively chosen which rules apply and which ones don't. But as they say, perception is reality. And so we're living in a world where the perception is almost universally that Christians just kind of pick and choose which rules will work for us and leave the others behind. So what are we going to do with this problem? That's the issue. What are we going to do about it? How is, as Christians, how will we listen and respond appropriately to this question that's being asked more and more all the time? And if you're a skeptic, how will you listen to the Christian response? to this question, because I think there is a, a better way to respond to this question than just throwing up our hands and walking away. I think there's a, a historical, contextual, and spiritual, like real good reasons why Christians interpret the laws in the Bible the way that we do. I want to explore that a little bit with you um, today. So when we talk about the biblical laws, we're talking mostly about the Old Testament rules. There's 613 of them, 613 Old Testament laws that, uh, are, that, that comprise the capital L law of God, all right? So that's usually what we're talking about when we discuss the laws of Scripture. Those 613 laws can be broken down into three different categories, and this is, I'm not inventing this, this is ancient stuff here, so this kind of thing has been talked about forever. The three categories, the first category is ceremonial laws. So uh, the ceremonial laws are the, the ones that regulated worship practices and how you sacrifice things to God or, or how you offer things to God in the uh, tabernacle or the temple, wherever the Jewish people were worshiping. So this was specifically Jewish practice, specifically religious or worship-based practices. All right, so these are the kinds of rules you'll find in Leviticus chapters one through seven. If you have any free time on your hands and you want to do some exhilarating, and I mean exhilarating reading, uh, check out Leviticus one through seven and figure out what an, a grain offering was supposed to look like in uh, you know the 10th century BC or whatever. It's riveting, riveting stuff. But that's exactly what those rules are about. Those rules are about you know how do you specifically offer a goat or a pigeon, lots of goats and lots of pigeons uh, in those chapters paid the ultimate price. <laughs> they gave the ultimate sacrifice, and, uh, and a lot of those rules are about how to kill certain things uh, as a penance for sin, for example. Now, nobody follows those rules anymore. No Jews, no Christians follow the ceremonial rules of Scripture anymore for a variety of reasons. First of all, PETA would have a conniption 
if we started doing to goats what they did to goats back in the days of ceremonial law. Uh, That's just one of the reasons, though. The other reason is that the Jewish people who were practicing these sacrifices um, when the temple stood in Jerusalem stopped doing that when the temple was destroyed in the first century AD, so 2,000 years ago, when the Romans destroyed the Jerusalem temple, and they haven't really reinitiated those practices again. But for Christians, the, the issue goes a little bit deeper than that. For, for Christians, the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament don't hold any weight over us, and we don't, we're, not, um, we're, we're not obliged to follow those laws anymore because of Jesus. So Jesus is the reason the pigeons get a pardon and the goats <laughs> go free. Like, Jesus is the reason. That's because the Bible itself, so we didn't make this up. It's not based on feelings or sentiments. The Bible itself in the New Testament, the book of Hebrews describes Jesus as the once and for all sacrifice. So Jesus is the reason these lesser sacrifices aren't necessary. He sacrificed himself for us and his blood is more than enough, more than sufficient to cover whatever sins we'll ever commit in this life. So why? Why offer these lesser animals, these lesser sacrifices, if Jesus is the one sent for all? So Jesus is our reason for not following the ceremonial laws anymore. There's another category I'll talk about. It's called the civil laws. The civil laws are the ones that governed the nation state of Israel to to help the, the nation state of Israel survive and thrive when it was surrounded uh, by enemies in, in hostile territory, all right? So these laws regulated theocratic Israel. Now, now, these are what you might call the clean and unclean codes, right? You've probably come across these in your latest attempt to read all the way through the Bible. <laughs> you got to middle of Leviticus, and, and there was a lot of eat this, not that, wear this, not that, do this, not that. And, you know, you probably threw up your hands and walked away. Uh, You'll get them next year, you know, but Leviticus is a doozy to get through. And and the civil laws are part of the reason why. Uh, But these these laws uh, really played an important part in the rise of Israel and, and really in the story God wanted to tell in Scripture, the story that gave rise to Jesus. Now, what you'll also find in these civil laws are punishments that are levied for certain crimes. So this crime deserves this sentence, right? An eye for an eye. It's a great example. Tooth for a tooth, life for a life, goat for a goat, whatever. There's lots lots of goats in the Old Testament. And so you'll see these kinds of of sentences being handed out and it was part of the civil code uh, of of the Old Testament. Now, Unlike the, the ceremonial laws, there are people in the world who still want to uphold all the civil laws. There are a certain ultra-Orthodox Jews, Messianic Jews as well, would tell you today they are, they are trying their level best to, uh, to, to, to keep all of the civil laws. I don't know how you could ever do that, but, but there's a few people who are trying, but they are a very small minority within the Jewish community, all right? And there's really no Christians that I know of anyway uh, who believe we still have to follow these rules today. And once again, no one's surprised, Jesus is the reason why we're not obligated to follow the civil laws that are in the Bible. And whereas the, the civil laws were 
intended to govern the nation state of Israel. Jesus, we're told in the New Testament, came to create a new Israel. He came to establish a new Israel, a spiritual Israel. So he didn't come to start a new nation state. He came to establish his kingdom. And if you're a citizen of his kingdom by virtue of faith in his death and resurrection, you have no need for the civil laws that gave rise to the nation state of Israel. So Jesus, by his life, death, and resurrection, made the civil laws of the Old Testament obsolete as well. Now, those are some of the laws in the Bible that that Christians today have good reason not to uh, abide by or apply any, any longer. And again, it's not because we don't want to, it's because the Bible itself prescribes it, okay? So what about the rules in the Old Testament that Christians do still uh, apply and, 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 and preach, right, and fight for in our society? Obviously, there are some, you know, um, the third category of biblical codes and legal codes is the moral law of God. So these moral laws are a different category that distinguish right from wrong. So we had ceremonial laws that had to do with worship practices, civil laws that established the nation state of Israel. And now we have moral laws that distinguish capital R, right from wrong, good from evil. So these laws were intended to reveal the true nature and heart of God. Some examples of these, uh, of these moral laws would be the Ten Commandments. I mean, that's what comes to mind first, right? These Ten Commandments still apply today as much as they ever have right? So uh, idolatry, that's still every bit the affront to God now as it ever has been. The same can be said for dishonoring mom and dad, or for stealing, or for wanting something that belongs to someone else to the extent that you're, you know, coveting it, sleeping around, lying, killing people for no good reason. (laughs) Those kinds of things are still an affront to God. It's still a problem for God, and that's because the, uh, the, the moral laws, unlike ceremonial and civil laws, the moral laws are not time-bound. So they're not, uh, they're not uh, you know, reflective of, representative of, or, or changing with the times. So they're, they're not based on circumstance. They're, they're not based on, you know, the status of a nation state. They are timeless, all right? That's why followers of Jesus to this day strive to live under the moral law of God. So let's talk a little bit about Jesus and his understanding of the laws before we, uh, before we close today. Jesus uh, seems to have a reputation for being um, a rebel, rabble rouser, uh, somebody who just really pushed back against the institutions of religion and someone who was really more about love than law, right? I think Jesus has this sort of hippie vibe about him in people's minds. They just think he was kind of a whatever makes you happy kind of guy, you know, law be damned. And I just want to make it clear that nothing could be further from the truth. Jesus loved the law of God. He said it himself, 
that he came to uphold it, to affirm it, to fulfill it. This is in Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. Jesus said, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I haven't come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Wow, that's really strong language for just a anything goes kind of hippie type, right? So clearly, Jesus would have us be very careful and to be very slow about, about you know, tossing aside any part of Scripture, especially what you might consider God's law, okay? Because Jesus loved every word of it. So why then was Jesus always on the bad side of the lawyer's and religious elites who scorned him and persecuted him for not following the law properly. It wasn't because he was living contrary to the law of God, but he was living in a way that was contrary to their interpretation of the law of God. Let's look at one example of how they said he wasn't keeping specific laws and how he responded. This is Luke 13, a story that I think every Christian needs to have in his back pocket all the time because this is so important. Indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, the leader, the synagogue leader said to the people, there are six days for work, so come and be healed on those days, not on the Sabbath. So you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. And technically, if you're a rabbi like Jesus, healing on the Sabbath was work, okay? So he's reading, he's interpreting the letter of the law. But Jesus answered him, you hypocrites, doesn't each of you on the Sabbath untie your ox or donkey from the stall and lead it out of the water, uh, lead it out to give it water? Then should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has kept bound for 18 long years, be set free on the Sabbath day from what bound her? And when he said this, all his opponents were humiliated because clearly they thought their animals were more important than this woman and their hypocrisy was being laid bare. But the people were delighted, these are the people following Jesus, were delighted with all the wonderful things Jesus was doing. So it's important to note here, technically, the synagogue leader wasn't wrong. Technically, by the letter of the law, he was spot on. He had a case to be made. Jesus was doing work on the Sabbath day by healing this woman, clearly in violation of the letter of God's law. But Jesus knew there was more to God's law than just the letter of it. Jesus came to fulfill the law. And I think part, in part what that means is that Jesus came so that we wouldn't just see the letter of the law, but that we would know the heart behind the law too. There's the letter of the law, but there's also God's heart behind God's law. And Jesus seemed to want to make it clear more than just about anything else in his teachings to religious people especially that it is possible 
to follow all of God's rules without keeping God's law. And, and if you are listening right now, you're a believer and, and, you know, and you feel like you've got most of this Christianity thing figured out, I want you to keep that idea with you at all times because the longer you're a Christian, the more of a problem this will be for you. <laughs> this idea that, you know, if you're doing the right thing, then you're in the right. Jesus said you can be doing the right things. You can follow all the rules and still not keep the law of God. Because if you do all the right things, but you don't have love in your heart, it's nothing. It's meaningless. That, that's Jesus's point, I think, to lay bare that worst kind of hypocrisy that drives more skeptics away from God every day. That's why nothing made Jesus angrier than when religious leaders kept the letter of the law, but not the heart of it. One time in Matthew chapter 22, there was one of these religious leaders who was an expert in the law. That's always, it's always a bad sign. If you're considered an expert in the law of God, it's always a pedestal that you're bound to fall off of one day. He tested Jesus with this question, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your mind and with all your soul. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and prophets hang on these two commandments. So I don't know what they were expecting Jesus to say, but I don't think he followed the script they had in mind. I think they probably expected Jesus to pick one of the Ten Commandments. Maybe they, maybe they expected Jesus to say the first commandment of the Ten Commandments is the most important command in the Old Testament, in the law, right? Have no other gods before me, that, that kind of idolatry commandment. And I think at that point, they would have been prepared to say, well, Jesus, why are you letting these people worship you? You know, I think they were always trying to contrive some argument that would, that would be the trump card for them and that would, you know, discredit Jesus. Why are you letting them worship you? If there's no, that's not what Jesus said in response to their question. What's the most important commandment out of all 613 rules in the Bible, which is first, Jesus said, love. Love, love God and love each other as you love yourself. That's as simple as we can make it, right? Love is the answer. So I think Paul summed it up really nicely. And we always go to 1 Corinthians 13. We talk about love, love is patient, love is kind. But I love this passage about Jesus's law in Galatians 6.2, when Paul said, carry each other's burdens, in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. Love in action is the fulfillment of the law of Christ. You can know all 613 rules by heart, but if you don't have love, it's meaningless. This is a message that I think the world is ready to hear because because love is everything to everyone everywhere these days. Like, who doesn't believe in love? I mean, whether you're a Christian or not, everybody loves love. Everybody's looking for love. Everybody wants to love and be loved. And, and, and it's amazing to me, if you've never thought about this, I don't know, but it's amazing to me 
that every body, every culture, every civilization, and in all times, they've always been in search of love, writing songs about love, writing poems about love. And, and this kind of idea that love is the first and most important commandment is music to the ears of even the most hardcore skeptic out there. But we should be careful. We should be very careful, actually, to not make the same kind of mistake that religious leaders make. Because just like it's possible for these hyper-religious guys to, uh, to get it twisted and, and follow the, the rules of God without knowing the law or following or keeping the law of God, I think it's possible for people today who are so confused about what love really is, but so obsessed with the idea of love. I think it's possible for us to say God is love, and really we mean that our idea of love is God. Because we often think about love as, as uh, really a self-interested sort of, in a self-interested way. We think about love as being the fulfillment of our desires of, and, and our happiness. And we think about love as being a, a soft, sentimental, and sappy sentiment, you know? And um, that's nice, but that's not love. And we look for that kind of love everywhere. And even when we find it for a minute, the amount of it that we find is never enough. And we're never satisfied. We always need more, whether it's you know, uh, affection or sex or, or any kind of uh, affirmation that we call love. We keep looking. Why? Because love, real love, the love of God is not merely interested in our momentary happiness. Jesus didn't come from heaven just to make us sentimentally happy. He came to make us eternally holy. May we never forget that Jesus, who, claimed, who came to remind us all of the love of God behind the letter of the law. He's also the same Jesus who said things like, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. The same Jesus who said that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the super-religious guys, you will not see the kingdom of heaven. And so Jesus is still interested in your holiness and if that's the case, then the only way for us to love each other is to remind one another that our sin is still a problem for God. And that we still fall short. But there's hope. There's hope. Sometimes this uh, argument of this false kind of love is something you'll hear in churches these days. You know, in a lot of churches, it's just, you never hear a word about your sin. You might hear something about social sins or, you know, things happening out in the world or other people's sins, but no one's ever calling you to account sometimes in these churches. That's not what love looks like, not in the way of Jesus. In the way of Christ, love looks like all of us looking at the cross where our sins were nailed to the tree with him not for the sake of driving us deeper into shame, but for reminding us of our need for grace. For without the reminder of our sin, we would have no need for grace. Indeed, we would have no need for a savior at all. But real love looks like repenting of your sin and, 
and, and receiving the grace of Jesus and relaying that message to the world around you. So here at the story, I hope we never get too comfortable with, you know, just discarding or throwing away entire parts of the Bible just because, you know, they don't apply to us or they don't make us feel comfortable or whatever. The whole of God's word is still and will forever be the word of God. And in order to understand even the parts that don't necessarily apply practically today, we have to see God's heart behind them because God's heart is never changing. God's heart for us is eternal. Just how he, just in the same way that he wanted his people in the Old Testament to thrive in enemy territory, he wants that for you today. God has such amazing plans and designs in store for each and every one of you. Plans that you probably lack faith to even believe in or to see in this moment right now. Your, your, your judgment of yourself is too clouded by shame, more than likely, or, or maybe it's too clouded by pride, if, if that's your thing. I've been there as well. But God sees you for who you really are. And even so, he has greater plans for you than you can imagine. But it doesn't start with making you feel good. It starts with setting you free, free from sin, free from pride, free from shame. It starts with bringing you to the foot of the cross and, and, and leading you to fall more deeply in love and, and, and to learn to trust Jesus all the more. And when you are there at the foot of the cross, he deals with your sin. He doesn't hold it over you. He shows you where you've fallen short, but there's no sentence, no punishment to be had. Only freedom and the opportunity to walk out of these doors today, to walk out of your home every day and share this same love with the world around you. What does it mean to really know and fulfill the law of God? Love God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. Now, because y'all are so good at designing these sermon series where the conversation just flows, the question you chose for part three of Ask Me Anything is like a sequel to part two. You all are amazing at this. So next Sunday's question that we'll wrestle with is, what should you do when even though you believe in God in your head, right? So you kind of get the letter of the law, you can't feel him in your heart. So what do you do when you believe all the right stuff, but you just don't feel it anymore, or maybe you never have? That's where we'll take the conversation next Sunday. I hope you'll join us in person or online. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for this uh, message today that uh, you've spoken uh, through me. And thank you for soft hearts, receptive minds um, that, are, that have been willing and open to uh, some new insights today, maybe some challenging thoughts. And God, uh, thank you for never letting us just remain complacent and comfortable where we are. But we also thank you for your grace that sees our sin but doesn't uh, levy a punishment as we might deserve. Instead, you choose to love us. You call us out 
But you forgive us and you set us free to proclaim and share this message with a world that is so desperately in search of real love. Remind us today, Father, that your word is true and everlasting. Every page of your scriptures are inspired and useful for training and instruction and correction. So don't ever let us think we can just throw parts of it away. Instead, Lord, help us to find you on every page. Help us to see your heart behind and in and through the letters in your word. We thank you for this reminder and thank you for this community. And we pray together in Jesus' name, amen.